0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode... You're going to hear an interview I did with Amy uh, Cottrell about her book, Uncovering Violence, Reading Biblical Narratives as an Ethical Project. It was a super fascinating book and one I highly recommend. So hope you enjoy our conversation. And Amy and I are both graduates of Emory, so it's nice to connect with someone who graduated a bit ahead of me. Um, but we share a lot of the same interests and have studied with a lot of the same people which is pretty cool so also if you had not heard in earlier episodes we're looking for a new producer Ed Hatkey who has been faithfully producing this show for five years is going to be retiring from OnScript and we're so grateful to him for all that he's done over the years, and we're looking for someone that could volunteer to help us with that, Um, or if you just want to touch base with us, have ideas or thoughts, we'd welcome that. You can email OnScriptPodcast at gmail.com to follow up. All right, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Cottrell, Denson and. Franklin, professor of religion at Birmingham Southern College. She's the author of Language, Power, and Identity in the Lament Psalms of the Individual, and most recently, the, and the book will be discussing today, Uncovering Violence, Reading Biblical Narratives as an Ethical Project. Amy, welcome to Onscript.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Yes,
0: yeah, so I'm wondering, just to start out, if you could talk about some of the formative experiences that drew you into this field of biblical studies, and maybe in particular, the subject of violence?
1: Yes, thank you. Well, I I really think that this, uh, my interest in biblical studies started quite early um, in my household. We were kind of text based uh, folks uh, my uh, my father's a Methodist minister, and my uh, mother was a um, is now a retired high school english teacher and so there were there was a lot of attention to texts and um, and and language um, and I think you know I went to college at a little Quaker school in in uh, Richmond, Indiana um, Earlham College, and I majored in English but had a heavy interest in religion. And then I decided to go to seminary. I didn't uh, didn't know what was going to become of that, but I uh, my first semester there, uh, I took Hebrew with David Carr, uh, who's now at Union, and and it was just one of those kind of Transformative educational moment. I, you know, I I just really fell in love with studying Hebrew. It just felt like I uh, had access to the the potential of the text in a new way. I really enjoyed David Carr's approach, and we just it just became a kind of a passion, really. So um, then I was uh, fortunate enough to to go to Emory and study with Carol Newsom, and and uh, things have just sort of taken shape from there.
0: Yeah. So. So you you mentioned David Carr and Carol Newsom. Are, are would you say they are two of the formative people in terms of professors you've had along the way? I know that we, we hate to leave people out, but I'm just thinking. I, hate like, to, I <laughs> do
1: hate to leave people out. Um, but I did mention both of those people, and I and I and I do think that they are. I mean, particularly in the 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 what I do now in terms of the study of violence, I think they are both really important in the way that I approach this work. Um, David Carr's work on trauma, Holy Resilience, especially, was a really important book for me. And then... Carol's, uh, Carol Newsom's study of selfhood, which she's been, you know, she's been engaging in that conversation for a while. That was really important in my early, uh, in my dissertation work on the Psalms, on the laments of the individual and thinking about who that, the I of the laments is, you know, what are the various kind of um, cultural uh, and linguistic influences that, that come together to, to form that I, that linguistic I. And, you know that's really where i started to think about violence uh, was in the study of of the laments you know i started to think about i started reading and you know studying those in my dissertation and and realized that i had not been accurately or adequately uh, prepared for the level of violence that is in <laughs> the lament psalms and i and i was kind of shocked by that wasn't expecting it. And I started to just think about what, is, what does it mean when people kind of step into the world of the laments and take on the language of the eye, when they pray that language, you know, when you pray for the destruction of your enemies and, you know, kind of pray that with some sincerity, you know, what happens to the individual? What are the implications of that? Uh, so I started playing around with that question, uh, and I think I didn't, I, I did a little bit of work with that specific, with Psalms and violence, but because of teaching obligations and teaching opportunities here, I pretty quickly went into narrative as a, as a way to address issues about issues of violence and the formation of the reader.
0: So that ties into a question I had when I finished your book, which was, all right, you've done this book on narrative and violence. How does this work with other genres? And maybe we could come back to that. Uh, but it sounds like you had already been there, um, having done poetic prayers of lament. So so you, t- you mentioned in the beginning of the book that this comes out of a class that you taught called Violence in the Bible, which I'm sure was, was uh, interesting and it's it's a good title for a class, you know, draws people in, um, something a lot of students want to wrestle with. And, and I would imagine a fair number of your students come from a faith background of some kind or at least have cultural exposure to the Bible. Um, and, and so what are some of the assumptions that they bring into the classroom or misconceptions that you, uh, about the Bible and violence that you address?
1: Yeah, and and i try to to think about that i mean you know teaching obviously is one of the primary ways i mean birmingham southern is a teaching school i spent a lot of time with students and in the classroom and that has been a major formation in my in the way that i think about the bible for sure the way my scholarship has unfolded and in this class i think that i think that a lot of people come into the class because they they think of you know, violence is something that they they don't like it, you know, they want, <laughs> they want to avoid it. They want to reduce the levels of violence that are in the world. And I think um, it comes, you know, they come with that sort of interest. They also do come from mostly Christian backgrounds. And I think that, you know, I, I pretty quickly encounter the assumption that I think probably all scholars of the Hebrew Bible do in the United States, at least, that the New Testament sort of corrects, you know, offers a peaceful alternative to uh, improvement upon the violence of the Hebrew Bible, and that that the class will mostly be about the Hebrew Bible, I think, is is an assumption that you know violence really doesn't occur in the in the New Testament. This is a a Hebrew Bible problem to be solved, <laughs> and and that yeah that that that's that's the, the kind of basic assumption. And that and that violence that the class will be about warfare um, is also the one of the major assumptions that we're going to talk about the war texts, and so yeah so those are some of the initial assumptions that i think they have but there are other you know there's another uh, another assumption that that i have often observed as well which is that i think people assume that they're going to be able to be in this class and kind of learn lessons for life right that they will be able to read the text and and then kind of be able to articulate the moral of the story, right, with regard to violence and be able to kind of pull that out, extract it and apply it to their lives. And that that, you know, the, the Bible offers those moral lessons for, you know, for for living. Yeah. So I think those are some of the assumptions. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, part of what you're doing in the book is saying that something else can happen as we read violent stories, so maybe uh, it would help if you could explain your view on what happens or can happen to readers as they read violence in the bible
1: and and this is sort of the the more complicated i think and and more difficult parts of the um the text for my students to to kind of wrestle with in the you know when we when we talk about this is that Reading is not just an intellectual process, right? This is kind of the idea that I'm that I'm trying to introduce. It's not uh, that that readers are embodied, and that uh, we come that we start our interpretive process long before we kind of uh, rationally understand what we have read, and and that the, that making meaning out of a text isn't just a cerebral, you know, intellectual process. Uh, So I'm, you know, so I'm interested in the ways that violence works on people before we even are kind of aware of it, before we're conscious of it, the way that we have reactions, um, the way that we are affectively influenced by the words, by the people that we encounter, by the words on the page, and how that, it creates the the context in which our thinking happens, so I, I guess I'm I'm trying to kind of undermine this idea, this very popular you know Western notion <laughs> of this you know the mind body dualism that we that we tend to function with, and I'm uh, I'm trying to say you know let's read as embodied people and and give attention to to that process uh, as part of meaning making as part of interpretation,
0: and is that what it means to read the Bible as an ethical project, which is the sub, your subtitle is reading biblical narratives as an ethical project.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. Um, that's definitely part of the, the, the main ideas that reading is not something that is reading a violence and thinking about it in terms of ethics is not, is not a, a a project that can never be finalized, right? We're part of an ongoing relational dialogue that is constantly unfolding. And the goals of this are not to solve a problem, you know, which I think is uh, sometimes an assumption about ethics that you know, that uh, at least for many of my students is that ethics will pro- provide a solution to a problem. And I think there are certainly better ways of thinking about uh, violence than than others, but the the goal is not to uh, sort of come to a conclusion. The goal is to be able to perceive more and be more self-aware of, of our reactions and Ah, uh, more aware of the 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 gaps, the silences, the intricacies of the text as
0: well. You really bring that out. Um, I'm thinking, in particular of your example with Judges five, which we'll talk about in a moment. But but I'm, as you're talking, I'm hearing the connection to your previous work on Lament. In that you're asking the question in both situations: what, who does the reader become as they engage this text? So who do they become as they? Pray the I in the psalms because it's it's a self investing kind of language where you're reading something and then suddenly you're saying "I and uttering you know violent prayers um which is you're almost caught as a reader then as you as you read these things you can't stay at arm's length and then and then on the narrative side you're i don't know if this is the right way to put it because but you use the term witness you're a witness to violence and and that does work on you as a reader. And so attending to that, is that kind of what you're, yes, you're up to yes. then? Yes.
1: Yeah. And I started I started noticing this um again as a as a teacher when we would be in the classroom talking about stories. Um and it often happened in the context of judges nineteen the, the rape of the Levite's concubine, there would be like a, a physical reaction in my students, you know, that there was a, a, like a physical cringe or kind of, you know, registering in some way, right, of shock or repulsion. And, and I started noticing that and paying more attention to the, to that sensory uh, response uh, in my students and in myself. And I kept thinking about those moments that, not only in reading biblical texts, but other kinds of texts, where I'm thinking about a book bastard out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison, which has one of the most horrific scenes of violence that i've that I've ever encountered and i I remember feeling you know i I don't even know how to make sense. it's not a you know i I don't yet have language for it, but it was a there was a physical sensation that I had in reading it. and you know, going back to that, I think you know this is a those moments are important ethically, right? Um, those moments are important in terms of meaning making. Can I say, you know, rationally? Do I have a an argument about that about that moment in the text? I mean, I could if I spent more time on it. I'm sure I could, you know, come up with a you know, with an interpretation that is that is verbal and rational and all these things that we like. But it's also, you know. But I'm already interpreting it right before I've before I've done that work. It's already sort of part of my way of perceiving the world. One of the the key phrases that I like is from Adam Zachary Newton's book Narrative Ethics, and he was a major influence in this in this book. And he he talks about he talks about reading as infection, and that is a very unfortunate phrase for us in in the middle you know it's a tail end hopefully of a pandemic to think about reading as infection we have all kinds of associations with that but i also <laughs> i also think it's very apt right that that you know reading sort of becomes part of our sensory perception uh, our interpretive framework you know the stories that we read it doesn't matter if i if I have a conclusion about them, they're still sort of part of the way that I address the world, that I think about the world, and that I respond to the world. That becomes part of who I am.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was in class yesterday, and I'm teaching a class in Joshua now, and we were reading from Deuteronomy 13, where you have the harem laws directed against the community. And and the and that's that's one where the violent rhetoric is so... Uh, intense to read, because it goes through the people you should not pity or spare who are idolaters and it and it uses intentionally intimate language like your very own son or daughter or the wife you embrace you know the the way the way it rhetorically frames that is it 's an intense experience even and so I think you're right that even if we can 't say what that does to us. Exactly, in terms of ethical formation, it is doing something, and and then you have to ask the question like, well, what is what is it this text is trying to form in us by seemingly intentionally doing that?
1: Exactly, it's not incidental. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, so that so that leads me to I, I want to talk briefly, but let's let's get into an example of, from Judges five, uh, which. You know, it's the, it's a story. Well, maybe you could set it up for us, get the the context, and then what you focused on was Cicero's mother, which is very interesting.
1: That story of, of Ya'el in uh, Judges uh, Judges five. It's actually in Judges four and five. You know, the the um, narrative account in Judges four, and then there's a retelling of the story in Judges five, or a a, a companion account um, in Judges five in in poetry, and. You know so the story is uh takes you know place under the uh, under the leadership of Deborah deborah and, and Barack uh, go to war to free the people and Sisera is the uh the army commander who is fleeing from Barack um so he's not winning the war right <laughs> he's on the run um and he goes to he he flees and encounters Yael alone in her tent. And, you know, obviously, you know, this is a very intense moment. There's not a lot of, there's not any insight in the text as to what Yael is thinking or perceiving, but he uh, is, seeks protection from a woman who is alone. And she invites him in to her tent and kind of comforts him, offers him hospitality and then um as he rests, he she puts a tent peg through his skull. <laughs> and it's a dramatic story and uh, and then it's recounted in poetry in the in chapter 5 and she is blessed. I mean it is a celebration of her victory over Sisera and you know she is she is really she is really celebrated. And uh then there's this this very Brief scene at the end of that poem of celebration of of commemoration of her, at the end where you get a a picture of, uh, and this is toward the end of um, chapter five. You get a picture of Sisera's mother. Right, we're celebrating Ya'el, and there's this reiteration of the tent peg through the skull and Sisera falling at her feet like three times. It's it's referenced, you know, it's it's emphasized, and then you turn. Very quickly to a picture of of Cicero's mother at the window, looking out right the window, looking for her son. You know, where is he? And then the the her ladies in waiting or her companions there, right? Say, well, don't worry you know, he's, he's probably collecting women or wombs, right? As it is in the Hebrew and, and embroidered cloths, right? So he's going to bring that back to you. And she's, and she kind of accepts that interpretation of events. And, and then, you know, right, as a reader, you know, that if Yael, uh, had been on the losing side, right, that that would have been her outcome, right, that she would have been one of the wombs collected by Sisera. Uh, but of course, the reader knows that Sisera is dead and that Ya'el, a woman, you know, which would have been a humiliating death, has killed him. And so there's a really interesting sort of very <laughs> sort of um, powerful emotional journey that you're taken through <laughs> in the story, right? Because, From the outset, you know that you are supposed to be on Yael's side. Um, You know, she's celebrated. And then very quickly, it's sort of like introducing a sympathetic moment with Sisera's mother, really, it sort of throws you off, right? And then just as quickly in the next verse, you realize, well, this woman is a. You know she's a monster, right? What is she doing? She's celebrating or comforting herself by imagining her son as a victor who is you know raping and pillaging hebrew women and and that's her source of comfort right, and that she might get some you know embroidered claws so so you get to the end of that story and and you're like okay, so I don't feel any sympathy with her. You know, she's terrible, right? And, but then you're kind of brought back to, my students are always like, but, but what about that moment, you know? I mean, yes, she's awful, but then why Why do we have to think about, why does the text kind of intentionally invite us to think about her as a anxious mother who has a son, right? And she is waiting for him to come home. It sort of uh, humanizes, right? It humanizes her, Uh, just as quickly as it dehumanizes her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what is What do you think that moment's doing?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I started thinking about that, you know, it seems as if one of the common ways of interpreting it has been, you know, that this is a way of mocking Sisera and the family, his people, right. That he's been killed by a woman and he kind of deserved it. I mean, look at the kind of people that he comes from, right. You know, they're this brutal sort of horrific woman was his mother and, you know, he probably deserved death, right? And there is a, there is this, the way in which the the text does do that, right? The text does sort of alleviate any guilt you might have in celebrating the death of Sisera. It kind of affirms that he was deserving of what he got from Yael, you know, and it sort of mocks him, right, and his family. So, I do think the text is doing that. I, I d- agree with that, but but I'm also really hung up on that moment of humanization as well. You know, I think that you know, rather than rather than read that as just kind of setting the mother kind of including the mother uh as a as a means of mocking or belittling Sisera, I I think that the, you know, I I started to think about that as maybe they were genuinely, you know, aware and concerned about, you know, the fact that that they were celebrating Sisera's death. And maybe they wanted to remind people that, you know, that he is a person, right? He does come from, he does have people who are mourning him. And that combination of, you know, humanizing the enemy and dehumanizing the enemy i thought was just really fascinating i didn't know how to make sense of it until i started reading about moral injury and brad kelly has done a lot of work on this that i've found really really helpful but you know moral injury is this this kind of the, the recognition that's been uh that's been building uh for the past i would, i guess decade probably more that people who participate in and witness acts of violence are also formed by that. They're affected by that in ways that that make them question the world, the justness of the world, the rightness of the world in which they live. And, you know, so uh, rather than think of the authors of this text as sort of intentionally dehumanizing Cicero's mother, I started to wonder if they were wrestling themselves with the celebration that they felt about this victory, but also recognizing that in celebrating the death of someone, you are celebrating the death of a of a son, right? You are uh, celebrating, in some ways, the grief of a mother, and so it started to be a significant moment on a number of levels, right? It starts to be kind of a, a more profound, to me, recognition of the possibility of the that the Hebrew people were not that they were wrestling with their involvement in warfare in a very complex way here that kind of opened up possibilities
0: for me. Yeah, that, I thought that was a great analysis. And and you you talked about how in addressing moral injury, one of the key parts of that is humanization of the enemy. Because, yeah, it, I think an Israelite reading that could say, okay, so Sisera is the son of a Mother who waits at her window, just like we might wait for our son returning from, from battle, and it's just this profound moment of of recognition and empathy, and and like you said, that doesn't that that's not trying to do the work of of trying to even complicate the justness of what's what Ya'el did. But by humanizing the enemy in a context of violence, which from the perspective of the writer is just violence, you're mitigating that moral injury in some way. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In recognizing it. And, you know, I've been very interested in reading. There's a great book uh, called What It Is Like to Go to War by Carl Marlantis is a popular Book by a Vietnam veteran, and you know he sort of he laments the lack of rituals in among veterans that that recognizes the the celebration of surviving war right that that you do that needs to be recognized right, and one of the ways that that people are prepared to go to war is by naming something or someone as an enemy you know and and that that's that is part of the process and surviving that. Is is something that that feels like it needs recognition and celebration. However, if we if the only way that we perceive enemies is as other, as uh, less than, as as dehumanized, then that is also damaging. It's damaging to them, clearly, right? But it's also damaging. To the warrior, right? to the the person who who engages in that kind of dehumanization process, everyone is dehumanized in that. And so rehumanizing is a way to remember, kind of call yourself back to your own humanity as well. And maybe that is the way that this text functions as well, right? The reader is called back to their own humanity, right that they have to kind of remember, right that this person is a person that Cicero has a mother.
0: Right. Yeah. It made me think too of what's, with all that's happening in Ukraine right now, it's, it's sort of the equivalent maybe of, of a Ukrainian thinking about a Russian mother. And then there has actually been a lot of talk about that, like a, appealing, trying to appeal to, to that reality. So, and you and you can see that sort of struggle with wanting to humanize the enemy, but also seeing the brutality and how do you navigate that?
1: how do you navigate it in the moment and then how do you navigate it, you know, for us reading this, this text, you know, how do we allow ourselves, you know, how do I in, in 2022 um, think about that event and make sense of it? And those, the structures that are created in interpreting that Are you know as you note, you know we we can think about that text and then think about it in relation to things that are that are happening around us today. It makes it makes warfare not a simple us them right process of uh, destruction, right? It's a you know it's much more complicated. Everyone is is touched by it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, I I want to just switch gears for a moment, do a speed round. So these are quick fire questions. so, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? Oh my gosh!
1: For me, it well, there are a couple. Um, Phyllis Tribble, "Texts of Terror," I think changed changed biblical studies. You know, not only as a as a feminist a, approach, but just the the idea. I mean, just recognizing that women as the objects of violence. I mean, this is just an ongoing, you know, ongoing concern. And she just sort of, uh, she mapped that for people in a new way, I think, it opened up a whole path for, for so many scholars. So I think that was a very important book. I think War in the Hebrew Bible by Susan Neidich, I think that changed. That book, I think, is just, again, sort of shifted the field from my perception. Um, you know, her interest in looking at harem, you know, and the the warfare warfare texts and really complicating that ideology and saying, well, you know, warfare ideologies come in a lot of different forms in the Hebrew Bible and really kind of making that harder, <laughs> you know, to come to conclusions about. I thought she did a really brilliant, brilliant job with that. And the other book that I just did, I'll just that I'll just mention is Karen Reader's book, Enemies in the Household. You know, and it's about laws of family violence. All of these books are about violence. I'm sure there are other important books too, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great book.
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. And she is, you know, she is, she's really doing something. I mean, it's, it's well written, I think, and, you know, impeccably researched, but she's just asking just great questions. You know, it's, it's about, you know, so we have these these laws of family violence that, that are, you know, that do violence to our notions of everything that that a household should mean, right? Everything that family should mean. Um, the idea that a, that a parent should stone a child, right? Um, it's just horrifying. And, and she says, well, yes, but what should we assume, right? Based on that, like, what, what should we assume about the Hebrew people that they were just, you know, violent people who didn't, who were capable of, didn't think twice about, you know, doing violence to their children, you know, um, let's try to think about what that text, what those texts, how they functioned, uh, in their own context.
0: Yeah. Um, I thought that was a great analysis.
1: Really sympathetic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, And that
0: seems to be a theme in your work too, of, of, empathetic, sympathetic reading of the text. Oh, well. Yeah.
1: Trying. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and I also liked her question too, like how the frame of Deuteronomy complicates those texts, because how does Yahweh deal with Yahweh's own son, Israel? Um, and it's not by just obliterating them at the first instance of idolatry. So that should shape our reading of those texts too. I thought that was great.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, what's a, maybe you've already touched on this, and what's a book that's had the most profound impact on you as a scholar that there may be a resource that you keep returning to
1: well you know the it's not a book um, it's an article that carol Newsom wrote about dialogic truth and i'm going to forget the title of it even though i just i just assigned it mm. i can't believe i is, just It's that bactine in
0: the bible or yes something like that? Yeah. yes
1: yes yes thank you bactine in the bible you know i that article for me it was just you know it, it just opened up a whole new side of my brain i think <laughs> you know it was one of those you know that you know that the that, that there are different kinds of truth right and the ways that we the ways that we think about dialogue are that that is that that is a that constitutes a kind of knowing that's valuable a kind of intelligence that 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 the bible models is is significant even if it's different from you know, kind of a, a model of solitary, unitary, independent truth. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I still find, you know, that that's, that idea has always challenged me. And, you know, cause I, I do generally operate, I think with a monologic view of truth. So if there's a dialogue, you wouldn't know, well, which side has the better argument. And, and if, what if the Bible is in some instances, and I don't think she would say every, but like some instances portraying the truth of the matter as a dialogue and that's tough to get your mind around.
1: The way, yeah, the way that we talk about truth actually is part of is part of the truth.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die?
1: I think I think the idea of interpretation as disembodied, you know, I think that we need to give more attention to embodiment, both in the ways that we are embodied as interpreters, the way that that uh, our, the the body is represented and talked about. Um, and this has to do with notions of selfhood um, as well, I think. But I think we need to give more attention to our embodiment.
0: Good one. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, just go back to your book for a moment here. What is your approach to narrative ethics? How, how does it foster a more complicated understanding of Samson? So I think a lot of us, you know, he's a brute, and he's part of this downward spiral in, in Judges. He's on the down downhill slope. So... What do you he sure want to say? sure is,
1: you know. Yeah, and it's and it's easy to read it that way, um, because he is so impetuous, and he doesn't seem to have any sort of self reflection about his actions, and he just goes from, you know, scene of violence to scene of violence. I mean, it's uh, it's just rapid paced acts of uh, <laughs> acts of aggression, or you know conquest of of women. So so yes, absolutely he does seem like that. And then and then I I was just really stuck on this chapter in you know the introduction to his family in Judges 13 that you get this really long chapter really about his family context. And what role does that play in our understanding of Samson's activities as they unfold? I think that's that was sort of the the question that I that I kept thinking about is how the narrator brings us back to context, right, and to family relationships and this strange story in Judges thirteen. You know that where, you know, Samson is not yet born, but it's you know the messenger coming and and telling. Samson's mother that you know, she's going to give birth to Samson and she goes and tells Manoah, Samson's father, and he says, well, I need, you know, I need to hear it for myself. And, you know, this, this kind of, you know, so they go back, The uh, Manoah's uh, wife, Samson's mother goes back and Angel comes again, but not, doesn't include Manoah, you know, and, and he's like, you know, I, it's like the angel and Manoah's wife both sort of have this disdain. They, they know they, they they don't want to include him. It's very, it's sort of comical, really. You know, he asked to be included, and and the angel says, you know, I told you what is going to happen. I told you what to do. Don't drink, right? You're going to give birth to a Nazarite. You know, the the special child. I mean, it's 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 this kind of very strange avoidance of discussion with Man- Manoah uh, miscommunication and what are what are we to make of that you know as a as a context for why tell that strange story as a context for understanding Samson and that's where I think this notion of masculinity becomes important right because it, it does seem like that story in judges 13 is almost intentionally. Positing Manoa's Manoa as sort of a diminished man, right? That he's he doesn't perform masculinity according to the ideals of masculinity, right? He's not the master of the household. He's he's sort of intentionally, you know, kind of put to the side and um, alienated in uh, in a position of leadership, right? They, he's not invited to kind of take on take on uh, a position of leader. And so you get to Samson and he's just kind of constantly asserting himself, right? Whereas Manoah is rest and seems passive and sort of uh, the diminished man, you've got Samson constantly asserting himself, constantly, you know, kind of trying to master situations, master his body, master others' bodies, you know, display power, um, rip the lion apart with his bare hands, you know, tear things down, display his intelligence, you know, and is that, are these things connected, right, became my question, you know, how his family context shaped his his need to assert himself and his masculinity, right? And this is, in fact, an ongoing kind of idea about masculinity and in gender studies is, you know, the this the the idea that that men are sort of in this exhausting process of continually having to assert power, right, and control, and you know, it's a it's a kind of hot potato situation of. Being in having to to kind of toss back or deflect any sort of question or threat to one's masculinity, and what an exhausting life that must be, right? If that's the way that you consider, if that's the way you are that you perform masculinity as this constant deflection of any any threat to your uh to your control and mastery. Um and in fact you do see that when you come to the end of the Samson story. I mean he's just he's laying in Delilah's lap saying, I wish I could be like any like another any other man, you know, like I'm done. (laughs) This is exhausting. (laughs) You know, I just want to be like somebody else. You know, so it sort of brings to brings to the foreground this, you know, these idea, these connections between constructions of masculinity and violence that that I think are interesting. Again, are any conclusions made by that? I don't know. I mean, he's not a likable character. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, he's not, I don't feel like a lot of sympathy with Samson. And yet the narrator, I think, wants me to ask deeper questions, you know, to ask other questions about him that, that kind of poke holes in my, in my neat little you know, attempts to, to, to define Samson.
0: Yeah. And that's what I love about your book is your ability to draw out those nuanced complexities in the stories that on the surface might seem horrifically violent. And you touch on this a little bit. And I was just curious to get your take on Joshua, because Joshua is another book where it's got this kind of surface, a quick read of it, conquest, extreme violence, they gain the land, success story. What are some I don't know if you have thoughts on that? Mm. On the way that um the book itself might invite a more nuanced reading. That's a
1: great question. I love that question. Again, you know, if you read Joshua closely though, they even though there's this, you know, the celebration of you know conquering Jericho, for instance, I mean that's the that's the book that or that's the part of the story that that most people not necessarily scholars, but my students definitely, you know, it's sort of like you read that story and then it's sort of like the rest of the book is not that important, right? It's like, <laughs> that's the main event, right? They conquer Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. But if you continue reading, right, it's a much more complicated story than that, right? It's not done. And it's not, and it's not done when you get to judges either, right? It's still very much undone. So that whole that whole notion of, you know, when is when are when has the land been conquered, right?
0: Yeah, there are Canaanites <laughs> running around all over the place. In, you exactly. in y- Get to judges.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I That's think that good. might be a that might be a way, but but um, but you would probably that sounds like a great you know, project,
0: um, yeah, well, I you. mean, it comes up in our class on Joshua and, you know, certainly with fronting the Rahab story, it's already, it's already messing with you as a reader and regarding these Canaanites and, and in particular, uh, uh, a woman who's a prostitute and, you know, kind of embodying everything Israel supposed to avoid r- religiously. and yeah.
1: And yet she saves
0: them. Right. right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so that you have a section on the book of Ruth and we don't normally associate Ruth with violence, or I think again, like as readers come to it, you know, it's this nice story, um, about redemption and, and harvesting and, you know, all kinds of like idyllic creatures, as you said, uh, in the book, what are we missing by moving so quickly through the book? And what do you want to say about violence in that book?
1: I didn't really start thinking about it as as violence in, until I started as a violent book. Until I started um, uh, teaching it, and uh, I had a student who was studying immigration in other in another class, um, modern issues, right, from uh, uh, particularly related to immigration from Latin America and South America, and she spent a lot of time thinking about thinking about our our modern. Discourse about about immigration, and she just sort of, kind of off off the hand offhand mentioned she just called uh, Ruth and Naomi immigrants, and and at that moment I I don't think that I had ever really applied that. That term. I just hadn't really made that connection. And it was like a lightning bolt. I was just, I thought, oh my gosh, that's right. (laughs) They are immigrants. And they are, I mean, and from there, once he started thinking about. You know what we know today, right? About the the nature of immigration and uh, started, you know, thinking about the migration habits of the past, right? That this idea of a nation state, right, is um, with boundaries that you need passports, right, to get in and out of. I mean, this is all very new, right? In terms of uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, human ways of organizing ourselves and you know migration this would this would have been a you know a a common thing right and so anyway so I, I started thinking about what that was what that meant right to to think about the experience of of migration especially for two women you know this is the only book that we have in the bible it's about it's about single women right women who are not attached to men and and what that means for them and and then i started thinking about well it it also takes place in the context of a Uh, ecological disaster, right? You know, the famine, and what does that sort of set in motion to in, in our thinking? So this, it took a while for all those pieces, because as you said, it's not it's not the kind of violence that there's no body count, right? There's not, you know, like when you read Judge's um, the Samson story, you get like numbers of people, right? That that Samson killed. A thousand with a donkey <laughs> right. bone. Exactly. You know, this is this is very it's uh it's uh you know, it's qualitative or quantitative. So you've got, you know, this you've got a body count. And when you get to uh Ruth, of course, there's no it's not direct violence. It's not on the surface. And yet the more I started Thinking about the the kind of undercurrents of the story, it seemed like it seemed like more attention to violence was merited, right? So I um, and this was a I think I was just listening to NPR and heard the a story about Rob Nixon's book uh, Slow Violence and Environmentalism of the Poor, and he addresses this directly. Just he says, you know, there's all kinds of violence that we can't see that isn't spectacular, right? We tend to think about, we've been trained really, right? To think about violence as something that is, as something that is like, that is kind of numerical, right? It's got a, wars have beginning and end, right? Um, World War I begins on this date, ends on this date, right? Or, you know, it's something that you can see, but he says, envir- you know, our environmental, Crisis that we are that we are currently both creating and enduring, <laughs> right? Is is slow, right? You know the degradation to the environment that is violence and that we will experience as violence eventually if we haven't already is slow, and it will be kind of a a, a process that. It's going to be difficult for us to name and see, right? Um, and so we have to train ourselves to learn to think about registers of violence that that are not direct, that are not spectacle, right? And that was useful to me. That was a useful idea to think about ways that that artists and writers have developed to connect to connect in issues of. Instances of past violence to our present moment, for instance, that I think is a really important way of thinking about violence, and I and I think it really does help me see some aspects of connect some things about Ruth that that are important.
0: Yeah, you re- you drew out a, a couple of features that I, I found helpful. First of all, the setting of the book in the days the judges judged, which so immediately the book is set in a in a violent contact context, and I think I think maybe. So- I had read that sometimes as a sort of contrast like is you know as opposed to judges when things are violent you have Ruth where things are quite nice but as you point out you know when she goes to the field she's extremely vulnerable and that's mentioned in the text and and of course her status as a Moabite is, is highlighted even when she's seem, seemingly integrated into life in Bethlehem you know, so her precarity as a, as a woman, as a, as an immigrant foreigner is really te- right under the surface. And so, you know, the book is, I, I think I forget exactly how you worded it, but there it's always like about to take a violent turn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's like you, it's like something's going to happen that's violent. It might happen, but it doesn't. And there's a, you know, there's a constant what i find now in 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 reading it is that it's sort of like it takes you through the the potential for violence that these women might encounter they don't encounter it but it's not but it but it's like it suggests that definitely other people have um encountered that violence and you know what are the various obstacles that that women at this time had to overcome in order to achieve a sense of safety. And even at the end of the story, how safe are they, right? I mean, it's a, it's just a, it's a text that Jack Lapsley's term, whispers of the text, I think is useful. It sort of whispers suggestions, possibilities, potential for violence that, that was happily avoided, right, in the story, but is also still ongoing and real.
0: Yeah. Not to mention the threshing floor as well, where, where she was very oh, yes. vulnerable. and precarious. Very,
1: very. Yes. What does she have to do in order to survive? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, and, and you also have a chapter on Abigail that I'll, I'll leave for now. People have to go read it. And, uh, and, and there's a lot more in each of these chapters that you drew out about these characters. I'm, I'm wondering if just stepping back, what it is that you're hoping to change in conversations about violence in the Bible?
1: The first thing I wanted to do was kind of build on and collect the work that is is going on right now and sort of categorize, you know how we think about violence, what's the vocabulary that we're using uh, because language is a is a tool for perceiving and perceiving, right? Uh, more about the text. And so I wanted to, you know, bring together not only the ways that that biblical scholarship is handling violence currently, but also draw on work I was doing outside of biblical studies that might, like the slow violence idea, right? That that might help us see more, right? So I guess the idea is seeing more, <laughs> right? Is uh, is important, or perceiving more uh, is is important about about encounters with violence and before we move to solutions not that solutions are not important but before we move to questions about action in the world that mitigates violence which is uh, crucially important i hope we can also recognize the complexity of the of the violent systems and learn to realize learn to see ourselves as part of them as both you know, participants in and victims of uh, uh, those those constructions, those interpretations of the Bible, right? And and use the the Bible as a relational tool, both for our own sort of formation as more sensitive readers and perceivers, but also for more sensitive citizens of the world, right? And neighbors to people. <laughs> So I yeah I hope there's a practical um, absolutely outcome. and
0: and I you know we didn't have a chance to talk through it but I, I did find that taxonomy of different kinds of violence in the beginning of the book so helpful and then you you sort of work them out in your examples throughout the book um, we didn't even get to talk about like structural violence in in right. in Ruth <laughs> there's and, so much yeah, yeah many other kinds of violence so you're expanding our vocabulary of how we think about violence and then that in turn, should make us more perceptive. So uh, that's a real gift in this book. So, uh, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with uh, me here at Onscript and all the best to you in your ongoing work.
1: It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah.